Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. A timely exploration of one of today's most divisive and pressing issues, the threat of posed by homegrown Islamic extremism and the challenges of detecting and countering it. Directed by Emmy Award-winning director Greg Barker, uh, also known for the manhunt, the search for bin Laden, homegrown, the counterterrorism dilemma is a gripping and insider's account of homegrown terrorism, the threat in America, told through the perspective of, the, of those who helped construct America's counterterrorism machine, as well as those who are its targets, inspired, I should say, by the nonfiction book written by Peter Bergen, that would be United States of Jihad. We're joined today by the director of the film Homegrown, The Counterterrorism Dilemma. Greg Barker, welcome to Film School. It's good to be here. This is a very comp- uh, in-depth view, a very even-handed look at oh, just what the title infers is uh, Homegrown um Terrorism or counter and and our and our struggle with how to deal with all of the issues surrounding that. Um, tell me a little bit about your entry into uh, making this uh, documentary, Homegrown. Well, yeah, well, I made Manhunt for mm. HBO, which is about the hunt for Bin Laden, and and uh, and actually one of the main characters in that film, um, I knew after uh, around 2005 or so, had gone from the CIA to the FBI to set up essentially a domestic spying operation uh, to look at the, you know, the Islamic terrorism threat inside the U.S., and he'd never really talked about it and um, at any length, and I, I had a feeling that there was, you know, something really interesting in that, and I talked to him, and um, this was around the time, um, just in the aftermath of the Boston bombing, and we were interested in this phenomenon of, you know, is there a real significant threat here? At home, and basically, I set out to answer the question of how scared should we be of uh, of terrorism that's that's kind of you know begins and it's targeted here at, here at the states, and that's really that that kind of began this this long journey that ultimately ended up in this very what ended up being but a um, a nuanced film that really plays like a like a spy thriller uh, here at home, but there, it, it raised a lot more questions in my own mind than I than I thought it would sort of going into it. Well, in what regard? I'm, just, I'm curious as to, um, did it, was it, uh, did it have well, I to... Think if, you look, if you think about the hunt for bin Laden, for, I mean, 9-11 was a massive shock to our country, obviously, and the, and the counterterrorism response to it was largely focused overseas uh, at the al-Qaeda threat, which was then based, of course, in, in Afghanistan, moved to Pakistan, dispersed around the region, but it was really, you know, the... the, the the, the the power of our um, intelligence military um, uh, machine was directed towards disrupting and and you know capturing or killing uh, the Al Qaeda networks and making sure they couldn't attack us again. I mean, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan are sort of separate to what I'm talking about, but the the counterterrorism operation was largely you know successful in that you know Al Qaeda was largely decimated. Um, and mm-hmm. became much less effective than it used to be. Now, that happened, and that's very, it was a very clear target. These people attacked us, and let's go after them and make sure they can't do it again. What then 
was much more murky. It was people who would act in the name of bin Ladenism or bin Laden's ideology, act in the name of of uh, Al Qaeda, or be loosely inspired by this ideology, and then want to attack us, you know, here in, in at home. And we saw some of those uh, cases begin to happen around 2004, 2005, and uh, and it sort of sparked this whole new phenomenon that we now call homegrown, um, you know. Islamic radicalization. And the question was, you know, well, how serious of a threat really is it? And and a huge bureaucratic machine was constructed inside this country to uh, to fight terrorism mm-hmm. as a threat. And um, what I realized the deeper I got into it is that the that many people who are actually the architects of that machine uh, think that the threat itself is vastly overstated and vastly uh, exaggerated by you know, part of the media and part of politicians, and that they largely have the situation under control, but they just can't say that politically. Right. Recognizing that events are still going to happen, there's still going to be terrorist attacks, and they can't stop everything. Very nuanced, complicated situation, and, and that made it very intriguing, but also a real challenge to make a film that, that can kind of wrap, you know, wrap a, uh, an audience's head around all that. Yeah, and I want to, I want to, uh, the people that you have from the counter intelligence the part of the film that is talking to the people who is whose business is to track these people who 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 may or may not be um uh trying to inflict harm and terror on us but there's there i like the fact that even within uh, the people whose job it is to track these people they are uh, conflicted may be too strong a word but they're certainly reflective of what it is that they're doing and why they're doing it. So I think that is one of the, certainly one of the strengths of Homegrown is that yeah, you find balance there. Well, tell, tell us a little bit about some of the people that you brought in from the from the intelligence world and and their perspective on this. So, Yeah, well, one was, uh, there's two main ones in the film. One was uh, uh, Philip Mudd, who was one of the architects at the uh, CIA of the uh, 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 Al-Qaeda opera- anti-Al-Qaeda operations, and also you know, the whole uh, interrogation program. He was the deputy director of the Counterterrorism Center at the CIA. And then uh, moved over in 2005 to the FBI to set up uh, sort of a national security branch at the FBI. Remember, up until, before 9-11, the FBI was, was essentially a terror after they happened it was investigating them with a view to prosecuting the perpetrators. Mm-hmm. It wasn't sort of investigating people who might do something, right? That was largely done uh, by the CIA overseas. It wasn't happening. The CIA didn't operate in the U.S., so the FBI wasn't really doing it, and there was a demand to do that. And so Phil Mudd went over and set up a domestic spying operation at the FBI, and that was really intriguing, um, and ran it for a number of years. And then there's another guy who... Uh, was also the CIA named uh, named Andy Liepman, who had been there for thirty years. Right, one of the key players. The, uh, yeah, key players at the National Center, doing the same kind of thing, looking at the threat here at home. And uh, these were two of the real key architects of of the counterterrorism operation inside this country, which is a you know a big machine that you know has a budget of billions of dollars a year. I mean, the exact number is classified, right. but it's a massive, massive budget. Right. And, uh, you know, that's something that's never really been properly unpacked. That's what we try to, yeah. to, one of the things we look at in the film. We're speaking with the uh, director, Greg Barker. He is the, the director of the film, 
um, homegrown, the counter-terror dilemma. And uh, in addition to the intelligence people, and, and you spotlight some of the people that have been the more uh, high-profile cases, I think of uh, Samir Khan and some of the, some of the others that you've, you showcase. Uh, Nadel Hassan, who was responsible for the attack at Fort Hood. Um, and again, this is, I think, going back to what I consider the strengths of the film is uh, the narrative that you weave is, uh, is balanced. Uh, we get, and, and, it, and, I, and I appreciate the fact that uh, we bring in people from the um, Muslim community to offer a, um, a perspective that we don't often hear in in, uh, in our di discourse. Um, so I, I really appreciate that. Even even within families, if you look at, uh, is it Sh uh, Shifa? Am I saying this? Shifa Sadiq? Sadiqi. Sadiqi, thank yeah. you. Thank you, appreciate yeah. it. Uh, and there, his family and the conflict even within his family or the, the different perspectives within his family about his behavior and what led up to his arrest. Um, uh, again, it, these we don't often get this balanced uh, view of the Islamic community. Uh, Omar Mosafar is uh, is a great voice in this. Tell us a little bit about him and his background. Well, he's a um, uh, an academic and also a, uh, an imam in uh, Chicago. He uh, teaches at Northwestern University and also Loyola University in Chicago. Very respected guy um but was in, in his youth um he's about probably in his mid 40s or so now when he was younger he was um he tells the story in the film he was attracted to the call of jihad himself and had considered um joining the taliban this is pre-9-11 in afghanistan and uh he really feels that he has some insight into the into why that that call might be appealing to uh uh, a young man or woman uh, now, and um, and he's really trying to um, talk directly and speak openly in the community about what's going on and you know the recruiting that you see from uh, from ISIS and its affiliates, and uh, because I think there's a lot. It's very people, understandably, are very reluctant to talk openly about you know some of these issues about jihad and why it might be appealing to some young Muslims. I mean, yeah. there's no question that it is and. You know, and it's just so. His his point is, we have to talk about this because and give answers to some to these young people who are curious. Because if we don't give them answers, they're going to find it anyway on the internet. And uh, and what he does, you know, successfully is unpack their rhetoric and show how they quote the Quran erroneously or out of context, and and um, you know, and, and tries to walk people back. Um, but there's an interesting case of a young uh, uh, a young guy who was who he was a mentor to, who um, who he who he sort of lo le lost and uh, yeah. slipped away, and ended up founding a magazine called uh, Inspire, which is the main English language Al Qaeda um, online propaganda tool, and ended up that getting killed himself in a in a drone strike and. Um, so you know it's it's not easy, and it's, it's not to say these people don't radicalize; they, it's possible. But but he's one of the people who's trying to you know counter the propaganda. I want to remind our listeners: we're speaking with Greg Barker. The film is Homegrown: The Counter Terror Dilemma. It is screening at on HBO starting this Tuesday. That would be uh, February eighth. It's uh, nine Central, nine Eastern. 
and it will be undoubtedly screening across the uh, HBO family of networks uh, over uh, over the next uh, who knows many months. Uh, but check it out on for, on Tuesday night. Uh, actually, it's uh, actually it's Monday night. Monday night the eighth. Oh, I'm I'm so yeah, sorry. sorry. Oh, I no, I apologize. <laughs> I yeah. Monday night the eighth. I I'm so sorry. Yeah. Um, I, <laughs> and uh, and again, it's on nine uh, central and eastern. And as I said, it will be screening undoubtedly across that uh, HBO network. Um, I, I want to dive in a little bit on this uh, be, uh, in terms of, uh, you know, you, you hear about the stories. I'm, I'm glad Omar's in the film. I'm glad the family is in, uh, the family of uh, 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 Shifa is in the film to to offer a, a different narrative, a narrative that is, doesn't fit comfortably into a particular ideology uh, or, or political perspective, and I, and I appreciate that about it. I just want to find. You mentioned the, you know, the, the large network or the large infrastructure that we now have. Homeland Security and other agencies are involved in counterterrorism. Um, do you think some of that now has to do with uh, what a lot of organizations do, which is sort of a, to self-perpetuate themselves? I mean, I'm, and I'm not talking about the work. I'm talking about the scale at which they are that they operate. Is that is that a fair uh, critique? Yes. That, Absolutely. I mean, I think it's, you know, these, yeah, I mean, if you're, if any institution, you know, is inevitably going to look after itself. And, um, you know, how many institutions say, you know what, we got this covered. In fact, you can cut our budget in half. Right. Or what politicians are going to say that. And it gets down to a very human level, too. I mean, there are people now, since 9-11, who have made their entire careers in, um, in counterterrorism. So. Right. You know, you say, well, actually, we've got this covered. We don't need so many people on the job. Then, okay, that means you've got to find a lot of people have to find some other specialty. So, yeah. you know, it's, and then, of course, there's then the political dimensions. Like, no politician wants to actually say, let's cut the counterterrorism budget, that kind of thing. But, but actually, I mean, bureaucracies are made up of people who have lives and right. families, and, you know, that's right. just how it works. And it's hard to unpack. At the ri- yeah, at the risk of going down the rabbit hole of just getting admired in a whole bunch of there's so many different issues that pop up once you open this box, so many things uh, occur uh, in terms of a sort of a natural progression of the discussion. So I don't want to go too far down this road, but I just recently read, and I I think it's accurate that one out of every six jobs in the United States is connected either to the military or to some form of law enforcement or and or intelligence. And I, I don't think it's too far off, even if it is a little off. I, I, when you start to can think about the size of our military budget and et cetera, et cetera, there's a lot of people in this country now concerned about, in some manner of speaking, national security. It, it's uh, yeah, I, I don't know that exact number. I know there's been some very good work by the Washington Post on that, and so yeah, I mean, it's, that sounds a little bit high, but it might not. It's still whatever the number is. It's still staggering. Yeah, so, yeah, it is a lot. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's you know, this is the this is largely a response to 9-11, you yeah, know, when yeah. our nation was, you know, clearly attacked and there was a, people demanded a response. Yeah. So Do there you... was a very strong response, but that became a bureaucratic response that, that you know, now arguably takes on a life of its own. Yeah. So, yeah. Do we, well, we recently heard um, even President Obama saying essentially ISIS, which while it is a, certainly a threat to the United States, and I think everyone recognizes that. Um, but as he put it, these are generally um, people who pose more of a threat to the region than to us. And and into 
and yeah. to the extent uh, that we are, you know, uh, fixated on on a particular group of of what really, in my opinion, and I'm not an expert, but in my opinion, is more an outgrowth of the schism between the Shias and then the Sunnis than it is. We've given them an excuse to to make us the villain, but in it, at in their sort of at their core, this is really a struggle within the. Uh, political machinations of Islam. Well, yeah, and I think it's even more particular with regard to ISIS. I mean, there's that, but it's also, you know, a lot of the, the reason that ISIS is so effective at holding territory, running sort of institutions, um, you know, pumping oil, is because a lot of the, the key architects behind ISIS are former um, officials from the Saddam Hussein regime. Yeah, yeah. For, former Ba'athists, yeah, so, okay, sorry. From former Ba'athists who, who, you know, made an alliance with, with the jihadis, the remnants of al-Qaeda in Iraq, which, by the way, I mean, most, most jihadi groups, most terrorist groups, are not good at, you know, at organizing, you know, a state running sort of businesses. It's not their specialty. I mean, Bin Laden was probably an exception because he'd been a businessman uh, previously. But, but al-Qaeda in Iraq, in the, its first incarnation, was really a bunch of thugs, um, but they align themselves with remnants of the Saddam uh, regime, and then um, and basically each side kind of using each other. Yeah. And um, I mean, it, whether that's just a marriage of, conv- of, a, of convenience, which may eventually implode, is a very interesting question. But it's like these. This is. But I think the broader point is okay. So ISIS is largely, I would say, a um, a regional Iraqi Syrian uh, strategic problem it's a massive problem in yeah. you know in in that area and it has huge shockwaves now the extent to which isis wants to and the the, the the radical islamic arm of isis wants to then reach out and attack the west clearly we've seen it we've seen it in paris and yeah. but but is is that their sole priority i mean it, it wins them a lot of propaganda uh, kudos it shows that they're more effective than than al-qaeda but but um but i think the president is largely right that you have to put that threat in some perspective. These, this is it's it's very different from even what Bin Laden's Al Qaeda was, which was a multinational terrorist organization whose sole purpose um, was to attack uh, American interests and then gain power in. Ultimately, they wanted to gain power in in, in Egypt and Saudi Arabia. So it's different, and I think you can. It's just, I mean, not to say they're not it's not serious, but yeah, yeah. you know, we are better off if we understand our enemy than and, and not just sensationalize and generalize about it. I mean, that's yeah. why people's whole careers are built around studying the Soviet Union. The more you understand, right. you know, who's your, who your adversary is and the complexities of it, the, the better you can respond to that. And I think it's important to keep it all in perspective. Yeah, I, I do too. And and I, it's funny that you should just mention the Soviet Union because we are a country that w- was willing and and uh, successfully able to wage a war against the Soviet Union, wage a cold war, a essentially a non-shooting war, for a 50, 60 year period. And we're able to essentially, after a period of time, the Soviet Union collapsed under its own weight. But they had nuclear weapons. If there was ever a, a real threat to the United States and to the rest of the world, it was the fact that the Soviets had several thousand nuclear weapons and were apparently ready to use them on and had demonstrated that they were, uh, they would if we did. And but the, it, the, the reason the Cold War worked is because essentially you had rational actors on each side. Yeah. I mean, 
Yeah. The, the Soviet leaders did not actually want a nuclear war, yeah. and uh, yeah. and and but one can argue that with yeah. the case of radical jihad, even you know, there's you don't always you may not always have that. That's it, the that's why people get so nervous about this. Yeah, no, it's yeah. that's a, that's an excellent point. Um, I I just also even if uh, well I want to remind our listeners one more time that we're speaking with Greg Barker. Uh, he's the director of the film uh, Homegrown: The Counter Terror Dilemma, and it's be screening Monday night, April. April, good grief, February 8th on, on HBO at 9 o'clock, um, Eastern and Central. Um, yeah, and I, I, I couldn't agree more with you. I, I, just, I, I just wonder about the psychology of the United States. And again, there's reasons to be uh, reacting the way we do to the things that happen. There's reasons to be concerned about people within the United States that are, are here to do harm. Um, it's just that we just seem to completely lose our sense of equilibrium and balance uh, when something happens. And it's a, I, I don't know, I guess it's a tendency that's kept us safe, you know, for all these years on one hand. But uh, we, I, I'm glad your film is out there because it does add a very valuable voice to the discussion. Um, of a sort I, of, see, uh, I think that, yeah, I mean, if I have another minute, I yeah, think the, the, the hype actually comes from, you know, of the 24-hour news sort of cycle and um, yeah. and the political leaders on both parties, in fairness, who don't really do enough to kind of tamp down the uh, the, the fear. Because, you know, if you think about um, after 9-11, people were very afraid. People stopped flying. Eventually things, you know, people, and the president actually had to go out and say, look, you know, carry on. And mm-hmm. compare that to the reaction after the Boston Marathon bombing. So, you know, people still went to public events. People still go to sports events. I mean, people still go to marathons. And and we, I think, could have took that largely in our stride. As tragic as it was, right. people carried on in a way that was very different to how they had reacted after after nine eleven. And um, and I think even with you know the San Bernardino, the recent attacks, you see, um, you know, the initial tr- shock and you know outrage and and of course some fear but at the same time people are still going to work with their side by side with their muslim american colleagues and you know it's like it's not like everyone's like oh we can't right. work next to we never know who's gonna what's gonna happen it's just it's i think we actually the public has a pretty balanced approach to this now i think you know the it's it's some of our leaders and our and our people in the media who who don't haven't quite figured out how to how to Talk about tragedies when they when they occur. Uh, talk about terrorism in a way that is not, you know, just in the mindset of post 9/11. Because uh, yeah. the reality is, this issue is going to be with us for, I think, decades because it is reflective of a conflict within Islam itself, and 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 terrorism has been a tactic since the dawn of you know of, of, of history, as far as we can we can tell. And I think it's going to continue in this country on some scale for a long time. So it behooves us to figure out a way of, of, of dealing with it and thinking about it psychologically so, we, um, so our leaders and our media don't sort of react and kind of have a more reasonable approach to it. Because I think the public's actually ready for it, actually. Yeah, and, um, we yeah. just have to give ourselves credit. Yeah, and I think it's good for... To, I, I agree with you what you're saying because... Uh, this hype, this you know, this sort of overheated hype that we get um, from any kind of a, any sort of incident like this or the Boston bombing. I mean, uh, 
it goes beyond just reporting it and it gets into the area of just fear mongering and and i you know i've always been that's one of the things that's perplexed me about the united states and its reaction to you know 9 11 yes i mean i understand why why, why we reacted the way we did but Here's a country surrounded by two oceans and two countries that have no desire, probably barely a standing army. And we have the largest military by a factor of quite a bit over any other country in the world. And yet anytime anything happens anywhere in the world that we see as a threat to our interest, we really tend to just bring, uh, we, we bring the kitchen into, the, into, our, into uh, what our reaction is. I mean, we bring a lot of heat. Uh, and uh, this level, yeah, I think you're right. The American public, I think, is finally coming around to the idea that n not everything is Armageddon. Um, I hope I so. so. Yeah, I hope so. I, I just want a last thing, and I, because there's one component that um, I don't know if this is something uh, that w is just too deep of a subject to sort of try to put into a film like uh, Homegrown. But the, re the reaction of all of the, these people in Iraq and Syria and, and much of the Middle East to our invasion of Iraq, going back to that event that d essentially destabilized that region in ways that we will be dealing with for decades to come, and the, and on top of that, the decision to dismantle the Iraqi army after it had said it would be prepared to stand up for a new Iraqi state. Those, I think, are the two things that, and rightly or wrongly, are fueling or are uh, certainly an accelerant to all the things that we're seeing in that region. Was that? Yeah, I mean, I well, I don't. I, that was beyond the scope of this. Yeah, I, and that's what that's I, a, that's, I. I mean, I. Uh, I mean, I. To some extent, I agree with what you're saying, and I think those those events will, you know, we will be feeling the aftershocks for for decades. Yeah, I think it's, yeah. um, you know, I think, yeah, I mean, Bin Ladenism, you know, yeah. predates that. Yeah. Radical Islam predates that. I mean, you looked at, you know, I had an interesting discussion the other night with some one Afghan. A uh, um, prominent person there, and from Afghanistan, and people were just talking about, well, would it, what would have happened had the, um, had the United States not reacted to the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan and just sort of let it play itself out and funded the Mujahideen? Right. Yeah. So, would have would the Soviet Union have collapsed if it hadn't collapsed? Would that, or you know, yeah. because you know, or was the collapse of the Soviet Union? Which many attribute directly to the to CIA funding of the um, of the Afghan yeah. Mujahideen, you know, was actually that worth whatever blowback may have happened from that? I mean, these are big questions. Yeah. But I think if you, even looking at you know the invasion of Iraq, you have to actually go back even further and say, okay, this is where it all kind of stems from. Was two events in 1979: the invasion of of uh, Afghanistan by the Soviet Union, and uh, and the Overthrow of the Shah by Ayatollah Khomeini, and um, and uh, yeah. and then this rise of this idea of, of political Islam embodied um, yeah. that, even though of course he was Shia and most, but at the time it mattered less. It was just that there, here's a, a political leader speaking in the name of Islam who overthrows a you know a repressive government and that was friendly with the West. And it all kind of goes back to those those two key events yeah. and. Um, you know, it's very complicated. And again, it's beyond the scope of your 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 documentary, Homegrown: The Counter Terror Dilemma. Right. But yeah. I just one last thing, and and I I just one you know sort of a little back and forth on this would be great, in your opinion, and this has been my my take on Islam, um, and it, it's 
because of the the essentially the the leadership of so many of the countries uh, in the Middle East that have been dictatorial, repressive, that no political there's no political outlet for these people to 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 get to have a better life, and that because of that, the religion of Islam has become uh, the vehicle by which people are are able or forced to express their their discontent and their anger over the way that they're treated by these repressive regimes. And I think that has, in my opinion, has contributed to the overall radicalization, politicalization of this religion in ways that are profound. Yeah, I think that's largely true. I mean, and, and if, you know, even, you know, the Muslim Brotherhood had always said, look, let's work under, even though, of course, they were responsible for some acts and all that, there's yeah. different factions, but their rhetoric was always, you know, we are, we believe in, in, in peaceful process, and democratic process, and, you know, then they look, they won an election in Egypt, and um, and then we're crushed, and we can debate all of that. Yeah, yeah. But, but the reality is, if you're a, a young Egyptian, um, you know, religious, um, you know, kind of activist, I mean, what possible reason would be there, would there be for you to sort of believe in democracy after what's just happened? Right. You know, so it's, yeah. you know, so, yeah, I mean, it's it's been a, it's been a rough road, and uh, a lot of it does stem back to the to the two things. Yeah, it's the it's the it's the it's the tension within Islam, the faith itself, over the extent to which people and the faith should embrace modernity or not. Yeah. Um, and the political leadership of 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 the region, many of the Muslim countries, which happen to be, you know, and I think this is just for historical reasons, not necessarily religious reasons tend to be dictatorial or authoritarian yeah. and people who you know just people who want a better life and want to kind of know that the rest of the world leads different a different kind of life and yep. wants to be a part of that so i mean those two are those are very very powerful forces at play and, and not going to be resolved anytime soon yeah. we're in the midst of a social and religious revolution in that part of the world and revolutions tend to play out over decades yeah and a demographic revolution. There's just so many yeah. things in play right now in the Middle East. Well, thank you so much for the extended conversation on 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 what the dynamics are of the Middle East. Uh, but the focus of our of our conversation is on homegrown, the counter terror dilemma, a fantastic documentary. And as again I said it earlier, it has the elements that introduce uh, so many the the shades and the angles and the perspectives in the film. Uh, are compelling and intelligent and interesting. And uh, uh, thank you very much for the film, um, Greg Barker, and thank you for your time here on Film School today. My pleasure. Thanks very much. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio.